One semester of law school. One semester of criminal justice. Two experts. I'm Kristen Pitts. I'm Brandi Egan. Let's go to court. On this episode, I'll talk about con artist Cassie Chadwick, who told a lie so big that almost no one questioned it. Until they did. And I'll be talking about the blue-eyed butcher, the Texas woman accused of stabbing her husband to death. Was she a battered woman, or was she just after his life insurance? I am so excited about my case this week. I can't wait to hear about it. This is this is a totally nuts story. And this is the second week in a row where I've researched something, read about it, and been like, that's it. I'm going to dedicate my entire life to this. <laughs> <laughs> and then I forget about it in two days. <laughs> okay, so I'm going to talk about Cassie Chadwick. Or was it Elizabeth Bigley? Oh! Or Emily Heathcliff? Who the hell knows? <laughs> I love these names. <laughs> I left out Marie LaRose. Ooh. But I thought it rhymed with who the hell knows. <laughs> and I really didn't want to do that. You didn't want to be too rhymy? I didn't want to be too cute about it, you uh-huh. know, because yeah. it's such a serious this podcast. This is a very serious podcast. Back to the business. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> so what we do know about Cassie Chadwick is she's one of the most famous con artists of all time. At least in my mind, I think she should be the most famous because in the late 1800s, she talked banks and people out of millions of dollars. Holy shit. In the late 1800s. Holy shit. Yes. Adjusted for inflation, I can't even imagine how much money that would be. $110 billion. <laughs> <laughs> What she did was You know insane. what? You would have blown my mind just now if you could have actually told me the amount. <laughs> So if I had taken like 20 seconds to Google this, sorry, your mind will not be blown. Okay, so a quick note before we get started. Yes. So Cassie Chadwick changed her name a million times, like eight times that we know of. And in every article I read, like every paragraph, God bless these journalists, they were like, and at this point in time, she was blah, blah, blah. She was Nancy Blah. And then, and I'm just not going to do that. You're just going to have to, every few minutes, just churn out a new woman's name in your head. But I'm going to be calling her Cassie this whole time because that's the name she became famous with. That's the name she died with. Love it. Great. Let's go. Cassie, let's go. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, so Cassie Chadwick was born in 1857 in Ontario. As a child, she had... Canada or California? Did I say California? No, no Canada. I'm just Canada. I'm okay. Just curious. <laughs> Definitely Canada. At least I think. You know what? I assumed. I hold on. No, definitely Canada. Definitely, definitely Canada. Canada. Yes, it's Canada. Because I unless think... it's California. <laughs> Please don't question us. I'm pretty sure I saw her on a website for famous Canadians. Anyway. Love it. Okay. She's a famous Canadian from Canada or California. <laughs> <laughs> so she was born in 1857. Where? Who cares? Yeah. As a child, she had a speech impediment and lost hearing in one year. Mm. As a result, she developed a very unusual way of talking. 
So she had this really severe lisp. Why are you laughing? Because I'm hoping so hard you're going to try and imitate it. <laughs> no, that's the thing that kills me about this is because it's such an old case. You can't actually. I can't like pull her up on yeah. YouTube. But I am dying to know how she sounded. Yes. Because people described her as hypnotizing. Really? Yeah, because she... Now I'm about to try to imitate it. Oh, but she, she had this really... She had this really quiet way of speaking, and she severely limited her vocabulary. Unlike oh. me, which it's like it's not a choice I make. <laughs> <laughs> but like she, she knew which words would trigger she, the yeah. lisp, and mm-hmm. so she stuck to a really tight limit of what she would say, and it kind of made her seem mysterious and intriguing to people. Yeah, so I that's see that the first thing you have to know. Yeah. So she pulled off her first con when she was 13 years old. What the fuck? Got started real early. Here's what she did. She wrote a letter to herself saying that her uncle was dead and that she was owed an inheritance. She drew up very fancy papers to, um, you know, imitate a certificate of inheritance. She did such a good job that when she took it to the bank, the bank gave her money. Holy shit. Yes. Which I wish I had found more information on this because she was growing up on a small farm. She had a ton of siblings. Mm-hmm. And all of a sudden she's 13 and she's got a boatload of money. Oh my God. <laughs> <laughs> and her parents not questioned That's where what this I wonder, money like, came from? Like, how long did she get away with it? I know that eventually she did get caught. Um, But here's the thing. So the bank caught her. She was arrested for forgery. But they released her pretty quickly. They were like, do not do that again. Okay? (laughs) So, believe it or not, that was not an effective punishment. (laughs) Because they were like, don't scam banks. And she's like, got you. Get better at scamming banks. (laughs) So she did. (laughs) So nine years later, she's 22. She takes that scam she did when she was 13 and, like, turns it up a notch. She saves up her money for really nice stationery. Oh, my gosh. Like, beautiful stationery. And she does kind of the same thing. She says some rich guy died and she's going to inherit a bunch of money. This time it's 15000 which in today's money is 350000 Why I looked up that yeah. small figure and not like her actual figure. Uh, I got busy. <laughs> I think I wanted a snack. <laughs> the wisps were calling The me. wisps. <laughs> um, so let's see. Yada, yada, yada. So she's got this nice stationery. Mm-hmm. She gets all dressed up. And the other thing she does, and this is just so unbelievable. Okay, so calling cards were really popular back then. Kind of like business cards. Yeah. So she made some up for herself. And it's like... A picture of her in profile view Mm -hmm. with a big fancy hat. Yeah. And in the background of this calling card is a massive brick mansion. Mm. And then in the upper right-hand corner, there's a smaller (laughs) picture of this old rich white dude. (laughs) And then at the bottom of the calling card, it says, I am an heiress to $15,000. And that was all it took. That's so, what my business card says, too. <laughs> Don't question it. I think it, it must have fallen under the realm of, well, you'd have to be crazy to print this up if it wasn't true. So people believed yeah. it. Yeah. 
Here's what she did. She would go into stores, pick out an expensive item, and she would, I don't really get this, but she would offer to write a check Mm -hmm. for more than the amount of the thing, Mm -hmm. and then the cashier would give her money. Yeah. You know, that worked like crazy. And if anyone questioned her or seemed a little leery, she'd just pull out that calling card yeah. and be like, oh, well, there there you are. You're an heiress. Oh, I'm sorry. You're an heiress. Excuse me. Goodness gracious. <laughs> Eventually, she got caught. <laughs> <laughs> if you can believe it. So she actually went to trial. Wow. But here's the crazy thing. She spent the entire trial making weird faces at the jury. I'm not kidding you. She made just kooky, weird faces, made them very uncomfortable. They uh, decided yeah. she was insane. So they they acquitted her. <gasps> oh, yeah. my God. Yes. Wow. So she's learning things from all yeah. this. First, she learns get better at scamming people. Yes. Then, like, I guess you can trick people. The other thing she learns is... It's time to find a new town because yeah. I told all these people I was crazy. Um, I'm not going to keep that up. Yeah. So I need to go to Cleveland. She moves to Cleveland with her sister and her sister's new husband. But things are kind of lame because uh, she doesn't have much money. And Cassie Chadwick loves having money. <laughs> yes. Wait, where did her $15,000 go? <laughs> when they found out, <laughs> the fun ended. <laughs> So here's what a good house guest Cassie Chadwick is. You know, she wants money. Totally unacceptable that she's Uh broke. So she gets a bank loan using everything in her sister's house as collateral. Holy shit. That's a terrible house guest. (laughs) So Cassie's sister was miffed. (laughs) No, so her husband... And Cassie's sister, they were just pissed off. And they were like, you need to get the hell out. So now she's kicked out. She's penniless. Shit. What does she do? I'm guessing she comes up with a new scam. <laughs> no, she she took night classes and did a vision board. And she got <laughs> the end. <laughs> really turned her life <laughs> Gosh, this was a quick one. What was that, 13 minutes? <laughs> no, so she meets a dude. She meets a doctor. Great stuff. He's rich. Again, this is... What dreams are made of. Yeah, yeah. What more do you want? A ton of money. I don't know what kind of magic she had, but she immediately charmed him, was like, let's get married right this instant. And he's like, absolutely. How could that be a bad idea? So they get married right away. And, of course, the local newspaper printed up a little notice, you know, Cassie Chadwick and, you know, whoever, doctor, whatever, get married. Doctor, whatever. Doctor, whatever. The Chadwick, whatever way. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> and, of course, she was going by a different name, yeah, so who the hell knows? Who the hell knows? Two people get married. Yes. That was a problem. That created a problem that she did not anticipate. Because the problem with being a con artist and always sticking with your same name is that then when you're in the newspaper, everyone you've ever wronged is like, oh, I gotcha. She lives here now? Okay. So all these people come out of the woodwork. Shop owners she screwed over. Her sister comes back. Like, everyone's like, okay, now she's with a guy who has money. Um, I'm going to get my money back from her. (laughs) This poor husband. Oh, no. 
at first he was like, what? Get out of here. Not my Cassie. (laughs) (laughs) This wonderful, sophisticated woman? No. But eventually he realizes it's not that everyone else is full of shit. It's that my new wife is full of shit. And so he kind of has this moment where he's like, crap. I'm I'm in a terrible situation. I've married this woman. I barely know her. Her debts are now my debts. So he paid everything off. Oh my gosh. And he divorced her. Their marriage lasted 12 days. What? Yep. All of this happened in 12 yes. days? Yes. Yes. Holy shit. He was like, I'm going to take care of this. Be done. Lesson learned. Oh my god. Yes. Yes. Um so what did Cassie learn from this? Keep on trucking. Just change your name next time. So at this point, she starts moving around, changing her name and testing out any scheme she can on anybody with a pulse. In Pennsylvania, she tries this one. She tells everyone she's the niece of Civil War General William Sherman. And people were kind of impressed. Um, But after a while, people start to catch on. You know, you can only scheme so many people before eventually word gets out. So she decided she needed to go back to Cleveland. There was just one problem. She was out of money. (laughs) Again. (laughs) So what does she do? Oh, Lord. (laughs) She, this is so gross. She extracted blood from her gums to make it look like she was hemorrhaging. The look on your face. Oh, my God. Yes. Well, I'm just trying to figure out where this is going. (laughs) So everyone thought she was horribly ill without enough money to get back home to be with her family when she was so horribly ill. People took pity on her and they collected enough funds to get her back to Cleveland. This is like Victorian age GoFundMe. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) And she's like. Thank you guys so much. This is so wonderful. I appreciate this. I will pay you back as soon as I get back to my family in Cleveland. Whose fucking mind comes up with a twisted fucking plan like that? I don't know. I mean, that is so... I just... uh, I can't imagine any of it. No! It's disgusting. Yes. But get this next part. Oh, God. (laughs) So she's back in Cleveland now. And, you know, the people in Pennsylvania are expecting to be repaid. And so they're waiting and waiting and waiting. And so finally they send her a letter and they're like. No, No, this isn't gross. It's just it's more funny than gross. So they send her a letter. They're like, hey, um, feel free to pay us back whenever, (laughs) whenever you feel comfortable. She writes them back a letter. Saying that, so she went by Marie Uh in Pennsylvania. She goes, oh, I have terrible news. Marie is dead. And then she wrote a glowing, loving tribute to her dead self. (laughs) Rest in peace, me. Oh, no. (laughs) No one was better than me. (laughs) Oh, my gosh. (laughs) Around this time. She becomes a fortune teller. What? Why not? Okay. Now, hold on. I need your reaction because I think being a fortune teller is like the best thing for a con artist. That is like. Okay, but what a fucking turn. Like, I, I'm i sorry. I just don't see like scamming banks and uh-huh. scamming people. And then, oh, 
now I'm a fortune teller, which I guess is still scamming people, but Listen, it seems like quite a turn to me. Sometimes in life, you're not on a ladder, you're on a jungle gym. <laughs> what? I think I've seen that on an inspirational poster somewhere. Is there a cat hanging off of the jungle gym? Are you inspired right now or not? <laughs> She, she had to test out a bunch of different stuff. Turns out she was pretty good at being a fortune teller or manipulating oh people, you know, however you want to see it. So she was great at being a fortune teller. Uh, she could really, really read people. People found her intriguing and mysterious because, again, she had this funny way of talking that drew people oh, in. Yeah, I forgot about yeah. the speech impediment. Yes. Okay, take it all back. <laughs> she was made to be a fortune teller. Thank you. Thank you. Okay, I have something to say that is not nice. And it has no place here, but I'm just throwing it in. Okay. My thought on con artists, and I love, you know, I'm obsessed with you con artists. You love con artists. My, uh, I think that cam- came out like corn artists, <laughs> but hey, I, of course, meant con artists. <laughs> if you can do something fancy with corn, I'm a fan of that, too. <laughs> so, my assumption about them is that they're all super good looking. That's just what I have in my head that in order to con a bunch of people, then you have to be good looking to really get away with stuff. Yeah, I could definitely see yeah, that. Yeah, that's just Well, I mean, what at I, least it makes it easier, I would guess. I would think so. Yeah. And I don't know, I guess when I was reading- I think it, it would be much harder to be a successful con artist if you're ugly. <laughs> well, prepare to admire Cassie Chadwick. Oh, gosh. Because here, I'm just going to read some of the things that other people have written about her, okay? Mm-hmm. Smithsonian Magazine had an awesome article about her, and they wrote, she was rather plain with a tight, unsmiling mouth and a nest of dull brown hair. Oh, God. <laughs> Not Where fun. can I get somebody to describe <laughs> me like that? <laughs> this next one is, called, is from the book Whoppers, History's Most Outrageous Lies and Liars, described her as having mousy brown hair, a round face with no discernible chin, and a smug, thin-lipped smile. <laughs> No discernible chin. <laughs> I thought that was so funny. That's, that's a rough line. <laughs> but anyway, the the bottom line is, so looks had nothing to do with her schemes. Like, it was all about her ability, I think, to read people, to manipulate people. Yeah. She had this intriguing way about her. And, you know, that was it. That sexy speech impediment. <laughs> 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 a classic way to win a guy. Yes. <laughs> so she starts this fortune telling business and marries one of her clients. And it's kind of unclear what happened with that marriage, um, but it ended, obviously. <laughs> so what does she do then? Because again, the marriage ended, people were on to her. She moves to Toledo, changes her name. I feel like she's not moving far enough away. Th- think, but those, this is back in the. Oh, whoa. <laughs> That was. You also have a super sexy <laughs> Are you intrigued? <laughs> Brandy, um, I have a business card I'd like to show you. <laughs> Please give me $200. <laughs> so she moves to Toledo. Oh, okay, what I was about to say when all my words came at you at once. This was the late 1800s. So I feel like you didn't have to move too far away. I guess that's true. Yeah, for people to be totally isolated. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Yeah, so just... <laughs> I guess I'll buy it. All right. So she marries another one of her fortune-telling clients. And this poor dude 
is just as dumb as a rock. Oh, He's just not bright. She starts writing up these checks. Um, and so she gives them to the husband and says, hey, go to the bank and cash this, knowing that he has a good reputation in town. He's mm-hmm. lived there. You know, people aren't going to suspect him. So he's taking these checks to the bank. Yeah. And yeah. So yeah. They, they get away with that for a while. Mm-hmm. And then all of a sudden the police arrest both of them because they're like, you're both in on this. You're both doing something bad here. And the poor guy's like, what? <laughs> <laughs> so it doesn't take people long to realize, okay, he's not the mastermind of this operation. He is literally just a guy who walked to the bank. Oh, gosh. At one point he said that he felt under her hypnotic spell or something. Mm-hmm. So, he's he's let free. She goes to jail. She's sentenced to nine years wow. in prison. Wow. Yes. But... Oh, gosh. <laughs> but once she's in prison, she starts scamming people immediately. Oh, my gosh. And not just the inmates. Oh, gosh. So, I'd like to think that some people were skeptical of her. But here's the thing. She told the warden, you're about to lose $5,000 in a business deal. And you're going to die. she's a fortune teller. Yes. Because that's the thing. She goes, yes. I'm clairvoyant. Yes. You know, just accept that. She yeah. tells him. Is that the name she's going by at that time? <laughs> <laughs> Jesus Christ. He's like, nice to meet you, Claire. <laughs> You know, the tragedy is that we don't have a video set up, so (laughs) you are so pleased with yourself. (laughs) Oh, God. So Mrs. Voyant tells... (laughs) She tells the warden, you're about to lose five grand in a business deal, and you're about to die of cancer. Then... Both things happen. Shut the fuck up. I'm serious. Oh my I'm God. serious. He loses five grand, dies of cancer, and everyone's like, whoa, oh holy God. shit. Cassie knows her stuff. Oh Cassie is magic. So she's got all that going on. And she starts up this letter writing campaign to the parole board. She's like, I am sorry. I have learned my lesson. I will never scam another person. Trust me. As she's scamming the parole board. <laughs> uh, but it worked. Oh, gosh. So then Ohio governor and future president William McKinley signed the release. Oh, my God. So she got out of prison after four years. Wow. Yes. Yes. Wow. This is when it gets really good. Oh, gosh. As soon as she's released, she moves back to Cleveland. And she opens up a brothel. Hmm. Mm-hmm. Sure. At the brothel, she meets Leroy Chadwick. And Leroy Chadwick is everything she could ever want in a man. <laughs> <laughs> he is rich. He's a doctor. He's part of Cleveland's most prominent family. One of them anyway. Yeah. So she's like, gotta have him. Yeah. Must have. So she presents herself as a wealthy woman from a prominent New York family. And she says, you know, hello, I am the owner of this boarding house for women. And he's like, I know this is a brothel. (laughs) (laughs) So what does she do? She's like, oh, no, I'm trying to present myself as, 
his next wife here. Yeah. And he knows that I own a brothel, so she faints. What? <laughs> she pretends to pass out. Oh and then gosh. when she comes to, uh, she's like, oh, my goodness. I had no idea. This is, this is horrifying. Get me away from here. I'm sorry. What? <laughs> I didn't know I was running a brothel? That's what she's trying to sell? She tried to paint herself as like, I'm, this is a boarding house where I teach young ladies etiquette. And mm, they have taken it to the next level. <laughs> Very hospitable ladies here. So that worked. No! I'm serious. And once again, with astonishing speed, they get married. What the hell? I know. She moved fast. <laughs> I, I I want to have a dinner party with her. <laughs> She'd probably leave with all my money somehow. I think she would. But I'm just, I want to know what it was no. about her. She, wow. Uh, so... Almost immediately, she moved into his home on Euclid Avenue, which, which at that time was known as Millionaire's Row in Cleveland. This, oh, I looked up pictures. It is gorgeous home after gorgeous home after gorgeous home. Huge places. Euclid Avenue back in the day, back in the late 1800s, was just incredible. Mm-hmm. Um Relatives of the Rockefellers lived there. Wow. They had a couple U.S. senators nearby. They had the former private secretary to Abraham Lincoln. Mm-hmm. So Cassie's like, finally, finally, I am amongst my people. <laughs> I am living in the house I was meant to live in. I have money. At last, things are how they should be. You know, she'd been the owner of a brothel five minutes ago in jail, ten minutes ago. But yeah. now she's now she's like, Excellent. she has arrived. This is my station in life. Yes, this is where I'm meant to be. So that good feeling lasts for about ten seconds. No, <laughs> because two big problems emerge. So she starts spending money like crazy, mm-hmm. and Doctor Chadwick is like, whoa, 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 whoa! I am rich. I'm not that rich. Right. You, I mean, you've really got to cool it. Yeah. So that wasn't okay at oh, all. Oh, no. Did not appreciate that. Then the other thing was, you know, she thought she would come live on Millionaire's Row, and then all the other millionaires would accept her and, yeah. you know, become her friends. Uh, no, they thought she was a big sketch ball. Uh, yeah. Because... Because she was. <laughs> because they were right. Yes. <laughs> Who's clairvoyant <Yeah>. now? <laughs> so, yeah, she thought she'd be immediately accepted. But the thing was, this all moved way too fast. Because there was never a period where Dr. Chadwick, Leroy, was like, um, hey guys, meet my fiancé or meet this woman I'm courting. It was just, boom, here's my wife. Mm-hmm. Yep hope you like her. <laughs> so the Chadwicks would get invited places, but it was really only as a favor to Leroy Chadwick because they liked him. But they they were whispering, like, didn't she used to run a brothel? I'm pretty <laughs> sure. Yeah. So people kind of thought, mm. uh-huh. so this is not good. No. None of this is good. Uh, budgets, no good. And the rumors are not good. So what does she do? This is... Uh, this next part is beautiful. <laughs> oh, God. I, I love, love, love this. 
Okay. So Leroy Chadwick, her husband, had a friend named James Dillon. Dillon was a lawyer and a big gossip. The guy loved to tell all kinds of stories. One day, Cassie found out that James was going to be in New York. She got on the train and went to New York. She found out what hotel he was going to be in. She went to that hotel. She waited in the lobby. She waited for him to appear in the lobby. Then she walked over to him, brushed past his shoulder. Oh, my gosh. Of course, whenever someone brushes by you that close, you might turn and say, excuse me. He turned, said, excuse me. And then she's like, oh, my goodness, James Dillon, what are you doing here? Oh, strange. And he's like, oh, what are you doing here? Yeah, this is great to see you. And and she's like, oh, I'm just here visiting my father. He's like, oh, okay. Because she told people she was this wealthy aristocrat from New York. Mm -hmm. And she goes, you know something? I'm here alone. Would you mind accompanying me to my father's place? And he's like, well, sure, that's fine. So well, this is going to be a difficult thing because her father's not fucking there. <laughs> oh, just you wait. <laughs> so they get in a carriage. She gives the driver this address. They pull up to it. It is a 52,000 square foot mansion. It's fucking incredible. <laughs> um, it's in the middle of New York City. It sits on, I believe, a little over an acre. Wow. Gardens. Uh, I mean, it is just beautiful. It is now owned by the Smithsonian Institute. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> <laughs> so at this ju- at this point, James Dillon is like, whoa, what I the just hell? hit my microphone. I apologize if God that interrupted it. your story. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to need a five-minute break to recollect myself. <laughs> okay. So, James Dillon is blown away. He's like, I can't believe this is your father's house. And she's like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, you wait here in the carriage. I'll be back in just a bit. She goes up to the house, knocks on the door. Butler answers. She quietly asks, could I please speak to the head housekeeper? Mm -hmm. They let her in. She speaks to the head housekeeper. She says, "Um, hi, I'm here to check the references of Hilda Schmidt. I'm thinking about hiring her to clean my home, and I just, I know she used to work here, so I want to make sure she's a good worker, she's reliable, blah, blah, Mm -hmm. blah. And the head housekeeper is like, oh my goodness, um, we've never had someone by that name here. And Cassie's like, oh, no, 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 that can't be true. So she launches into a long description of this fake person she just made up. Oh my god! And the lady's thinking and thinking, she's like, no, and... Cassie's like, oh, this can't be right. Let me tell you a little bit about her history. Makes up the history. (laughs) Cassie drags this out for half an hour. Oh, my god! This conversation. Then she walks out. And from underneath her coat, she pulls out an envelope so that it will look to James Dillon like she walked in empty-handed, but she's leaving with this envelope. Uh She gets back to the carriage. What slips out of the envelope? Oopsies. It's a $2 million promissory note signed by Andrew Carnegie. What? (laughs) So Andrew Carnegie um, was one of the wealthiest men in the world at this point. Yeah, maybe you've heard of a little hall. (laughs) Huh? What now? (laughs) 
So, you know, James Dillon looks down at this promissory note with Andrew Carnegie's signature on it. And he's like, whoa, what? And she goes, look, I'm going to tell you this, but you have to swear you will not tell anybody. So, of course, he agrees. Sure. Yeah. What do you want to tell me? She goes, I am the illegitimate daughter of Andrew Carnegie. What? (laughs) She's, that's what she claims. She says, I'm the illegitimate daughter of Andrew Carnegie, founder of Carnegie Steel Company. Um, then, you know, since she's unburdening herself, she goes ahead and opens the envelope and shows James even more stuff. So she's got $5 million worth of securities, promissory notes for half a million dollars, quarter million dollars. And she's like, this is just a small piece of the pie. I've got way more back home. And when daddy dies, I'm going to inherit millions. He, you know, we've got to keep this quiet because obviously it's an embarrassment, but he feels obligated to take care of me because I am his flesh and blood. Oh, my gosh. But again, James, don't tell a soul. (laughs) (laughs) I would just hate for this to get out. Yes. (laughs) Uh, But of course, he told everybody. Yeah. Okay. I think this is a brilliant scheme because... James went around telling everybody, but he always said it in like, you can't tell anybody. So then it becomes an open secret that no one, no one's going to call anybody out on, but everybody knows Knows. it. Yeah, that's true. So it changes the way she's treated by the people on Millionaire's Row. And more importantly, once all the banks find out, they're like, whoa, we've got to get this woman's business because she's a millionaire right now. She's going to become extremely wealthy when Andrew Carnegie dies, we have to get her business. So they offer her massive loans. And homegirl buys everything. (laughs) She goes nuts. Oh, gosh. Diamonds, pearls, a gold pipe organ. I'm sorry, a gold pipe organ? Yes. Yes. Everybody needs one of those. It was only the necessities that she went after. <laughs> Basically, my understanding is if it was gold, she needed to have it. Yeah. She brought in furniture from Europe, which I don't even know. That has to be the most crazy expensive thing you so could that do. It would be super expensive at that time, yeah. Bring in furniture from Europe to Cleveland? Yeah. Yeah, that's, that's nuts. <laughs> so she brings in designer clothes from New York. She became a big fixture at all the shops in Cleveland. Mm-hmm. According to a newspaper article I read, she thought nothing of spending $10,000 in a single shopping day. In the late 1800s. Yes. Fuck! <laughs> I mean, I know it's nothing for you and I right now. No, right now, I mean, that's just, you know, pennies. Can you imagine? No, I can't fucking imagine. Yeah. Um, she even bought a chair that made a musical sound when, every, when anyone sat in it. What? <laughs> and my understanding is not like a... Like a whoopee cushion. Yes! Oh, that's exactly what I wrote down. I wrote down old-timey whoopee cushion. <laughs> <laughs> because my understanding is it was like one note, yeah. which sounds like a terrible joke that's to play on someone. <laughs> And then, you know, she starts really rubbing in her wealth into people's faces. She bought grand pianos to give out as gifts. Like eight grand pianos. Just here you go. Yeah. Thank you for coming to dinner. Have this grand grand piano. piano. 
um, for Those wedding. Are a real bitch to get in the wagon <laughs> on the way. <laughs> Good luck with this. <laughs> Hope you've got space. So she gave people expensive cars as wedding presents. Oh my gosh. And this was when she became nicknamed the Queen of Ohio. Mm-hmm. This went on for eight years. Oh my God. Yes. Eight years. Can you imagine? How many grand pianos could she have bought in eight years? They say eight. I would believe more. I believe more too. Yes. She took out millions of dollars worth of loans. Yeah. Um, So an article from the Vintage News said she took out $20 million. I think the Smithsonian once said $16.5 million. I mean, either way... Shit ton. Shit ton. Yes. Why didn't these articles just say shit ton? I know. Yeah. Come on. She became so well known as Andrew Carnegie's illegitimate daughter that Andrew Carnegie's friends started loaning her money. (gasps) Yeah. Oh, my God. Because, you know, everyone knew she'd be able to pay because, you know, Andrew Carnegie. Oh, my God. Mm Mm-hmm. So let's get into more detail about the Carnegie scam. In a second. <laughs> I thought you intentionally raised your voice to cover up peanut barking. Uh, no. <laughs> if people hear that, that's just part of the charm. That is, that is the joy of this podcast. Yes. Maybe you hear a cat. Maybe you hear a dog. Maybe you hear Norm opening 800 doors. Yes. Yes. <laughs> Definitely you hear Norm opening the door. So... She pulled off this scam at dozens of banks, mostly in Ohio, but also on the East Coast. She took out a ton of loans and would usually, like, pay off one loan with another loan. So people, you know, it kind of hit her tracks a little bit. And she didn't just scam the banks. She scammed wealthy people, too. And that's how she finally got into trouble. Oh, God. (laughs) So quite a few years into the scheme, she meets up with an investment banker from Boston. He knows all about how she's Andrew Carnegie's illegitimate child, and he wants in on this. He's like, absolutely, I can loan you money. (laughs) Uh He wrote her a check from his business for $79,000. He wrote her a personal check from his own account, and then he gave her a promissory note for almost $200,000. Holy shit. These people had too much money. Clearly. Yeah. Here's where his own greed came into play, and I think this is kind of fun. (laughs) He tacked on an insane interest rate to all these loans. He was like, mm-hmm, yeah, this I'm is going to be great. Money. Yeah. Because he wanted to cash in on yeah. the connection. And of course, Cassie was like, sure, I'll pay whatever interest rate you want. Because <laughs> <laughs> she wasn't going to fucking pay it anyway. No way. Yeah, she like, never had any intention of paying it. Yeah, make it, make it 11 billion yes. percent interest rate. Sure, I'll pay that. So he's like, excellent. She is so rich and so naive. Perfect. <laughs> Then I kind of love that I know screwing him over and he thinks that he's screwing her over. It made me really happy too. (laughs) So, but then, you know, he feels really good, but then he's like, uh oh. Because he starts talking to other people in the finance world and realize realizes that everyone's loaning her money and no one's getting it back. So he got suspicious. Yeah. And it's he, about time somebody did. Yes. So he finally did what no one to that point had done. He called Andrew Carnegie. Oh! 
And even I'm, Andrew Carnegie's friends weren't like mm-mm. because it was see, they didn't want to have the embarrassing conversation about the illegitimate child. All right, I get it. That's you've totally filled it in. <laughs> yes. Everyone was no one wanted to embarrass him. Yes. Um, and I think again going to the greed thing, I think they felt like they were kind of getting away with something by loaning her this money. Yeah. And so, yeah, no one wanted to talk to Andrew yeah. Carnegie about it. Yes. <laughs> oh, no. So he calls up Andrew Carnegie. And Andrew Carnegie's like, uh, who? <laughs> <laughs> so the guy was pissed. He's like, oh, shit. She's not the dummy. I'm, I'm the, the dummy. dummy. <laughs> <laughs> so in 1905, he sued her. And that's when shit hit the fan. All of a sudden... Everyone started to realize, oh, my gosh, we've all been scammed. All these banks got into trouble. Here's the thing that's tough. I I saw this in the Smithsonian article, and I totally agree. There's this theory that we don't know how much she really took from wealthy people because wealthy people would be too embarrassed Embarrassed to admit what they got scammed out of. Exactly. Absolutely. And it's like, if you can take that financial hit, it's just better to not take the ego hit. Exactly. And the other thing that I think plays into this, because first of all, I think that's just human nature in any situation. Yes. But the other thing was that when Andrew Carnegie found out about this, he gave interviews to newspapers where he was just like, I can't believe people are this naive. Yeah. This is so... He he made it, I think, so that people would be really embarrassed. Yeah. Which I'm sure he was pissed. Not only at her, but at all these people who were, like, waiting for him to die. Yeah. <laughs> you know? So, yeah, he, he told the New York Times, I, I can't believe this. Yeah. I can't believe so many people were so naive as to fall for this. Oh and he's like, and I can't believe nobody... Asked, asked me. me. If yes. they had just asked me, yep. I would have told them. <sighs> so, again, 1905, she's getting sued. She tries to escape. She makes it all the way to New York. She is caught and arrested with a money belt clipped to her filled with $100,000. <laughs> oh, <God. laughs> the trial became national news. And I don't have a ton of info on the trial, but um, a lot of... I mean, of, what are we doing? A, a court podcast? Certainly not. No. This is a con artist podcast. That's correct. <laughs> Let's go to con artist school. Let's get con. <laughs> <laughs> so a lot of prominent people attended this trial, including Andrew Carnegie. Yeah, he stayed for the whole trial. Yeah, Yeah. He was like, oh, hello, folks. Yeah. The trial lasted six days. Cassie pled not guilty, Mm -hmm. and she claimed that she never said that Andrew Carnegie was her father. What? (laughs) Which I wonder... How uh, could anybody prove that she did? That's kind of what I wonder. Yeah. Because uh, if it was this super secret thing and everyone was kind of loaning her this money with like a wink, but anyway, nobody believed that, so I guess it doesn't matter. After five hours of deliberation, the jury found her guilty of conspiracy to defraud a national bank. She was sentenced to 10 years in prison. Afterward, Andrew Carnegie was able to actually look at some of these forged documents. Uh And he said, if anybody had seen this paper and then really believed that I had drawn it up and signed it, I could hardly have been flattered. 
and he pointed out all these spelling errors oh, and grammar errors. And he's like, do you people think I'm dumb? Oh, my god! And then he said, why, I have not signed a note in the last 30 years. Wow. So a little while after that, Cassie showed up for prison. She brought furniture, uh, <laughs> designer clothes, animal skin rugs. What the hell? And the warden allowed all of it. What? Yeah. She was kind of a celebrity. I mean, uh-huh. it, w- it was just one of those weird things. Yeah. Uh, two years into her sentence, she died in prison on her 50th birthday. What'd she die of? Oh, God. I just can't Just being remember. 50 in 1905. <laughs> <laughs> they wrote that on the tombstone. Yeah. <laughs> no, I think she had... I feel like she went blind or... I mean, like, yeah. stuff happened to her. Yeah, yeah. Prison life wasn't good to her. No. She really needed the high life. Oh, my gosh. Is that not the craziest that is story? Crazy. I just can't believe that she's not more well-known than yeah, she I've never is. Heard of her. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Gosh. I think that there's the fact that such a high profile uh wealthy celebrity. Yeah. I mean at that time I think that's a Andrew Carnegie would be oh, considered absolutely. a celebrity. Absolutely. To be in, so closely involved in that. That's bananas. Yes. Yeah. Yes, it absolutely is. Yeah. Uh, that's good. Thank you. I am a little bit um, concerned with your obsession with Connor. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I don't know what it is. But you told me to listen to that podcast, Dirty John. Yes. Um, I listened to it alarmingly quickly. Yes. You know, just blew through it. Yes. I don't know what it is. I just, I'm, I'm fascinated. I don't get it. Is it because you don't trust anyone? Yeah. You know what? Very good. Very good. Yeah. Duh. What am I like? It's a mystery. No, I have trust issues. That's why. Oh, my gosh. Because I was thinking like. This has been therapy hour with Kristen Brandy. I love that you just immediately were like, boom, there's your answer. Because I have been thinking this for like, you know. So it's, to you, it has to be just mind boggling that people would trust people so much that they could get conned to that level. Good God. Anytime I wonder anything about myself, I need to call you up. And then you can just be like, boom. (laughs) But no, you're totally right. I am a fortune teller. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I think it's because... I'm so skeptical about everything. I'm, yeah, I just, yeah. I don't get it. Yeah. I don't get any of it. Right. I don't get a 13-year-old showing up at a bank saying, no. I'm inheriting a ton of money. No, don't get that. No. Don't get I don't even any. get where someone comes up with the ideas that she came up with. No, no. Like, I can't even wrap my brain around that part of it. The whole scene of her going to New York... Brushing up against James Dillon. I mean, what the hell? Yeah, that. Yeah, that is nuts. It is. I I find her completely fascinating. I agree with you. Yes, I think she is fascinating. Do you have trust issues too? Is that what this is coming down to? (laughs) (laughs) You've got to be just as messed up as me. That's right. (laughs) Huh. I liked that one. That's very interesting. Uh, next time, I'll try to include more trial stuff. 
As you wisely pointed out, we are a trial podcast. <laughs> hey, I mean, there was a there was a trial in it. I think that met the requirements of the podcast, Kristen. You know, it was one of those things where I I read that story about James Dillon and it, like what she did, mm-hmm. and I was so sucked in by that that by the time I got to the point of the trial and there was like nothing. I was like, um, I'm in too deep. Too deep. It's Tuesday at 10 o'clock at night. (laughs) (laughs) This is just the way it's going to be. Yeah. It's our fucking podcast. If you don't like it, you don't fucking listen. Please listen. Whoa, no. Please listen. Please listen. (laughs) Good God. Please listen. I'm taking it all back. Otherwise, we're just two crazy ladies talking to each other in this tiny room every week. I was going to say, Brandy... I looked at the iTunes analytics on our podcast. We can't be turning anyone away. Bring us your crazies. I will right, we'll take all of the crazies. Mm-hmm. All right, are you ready to hear about the blue-eyed butcher? I, I love. I I loved your intro. I'm so excited. Battered worm. Well, battered worm. <laughs> battered woman or insurance scam. Very excited. Okay. So as I was talking about the podcast at work one day, so, you know, as you know, I work mm-hmm. in a salon, so mm-hmm. there's girls around me all the time, and we love talking about this kind of stuff. Um, so we're talking about the podcast, and one of the girls at the salon told me about this case. She had seen the Lifetime movie about it, and love it. she said it was really interesting, and so I looked it up, and holy shit was she right. So shout out to Maya for introducing <laughs> me to this case. Thank you, Maya. This is the tale of the blue-eyed butcher. I got my info from an amazing article in Texas Monthly by Skip Hollinsworth, which I love that name. I feel like I know that name. Well, I feel like maybe he was Blanche's grandson yeah. the Golden Girl. That's how I know that name. Oh my god. <laughs> Do you know how humbling that is to be like, I think I know this journalist's name. Maybe it's because I'm so well read. No, it's because I watch the Golden Girls on the Hallmark Channel all the time. Um, And then I pulled from another article um, from the Houston Chronicle by Andrew Tillman. It's spelled T-I-L-G-H-M-A-N. Yeah, I, I have no idea. Tilchman. <laughs> I'm sorry, Andrew. If you'd like to send me over a phonetic pronunciation <laughs> of your name, I'd be happy to correct it. <laughs> right now I'm going with Tilchman. <laughs> because if the G-H are silent, why fucking have them in there? <laughs> I agree. I totally... Useless. Yes. <laughs> All right, January 18th, 2003. We are uh, juniors in high school. Yes, yes, we are. We are juniors in high school. Uh huh. Okay. Oh, um, you have more (laughs) to add to that? (laughs) I was just going to say for our first episode, I don't know if you noticed this, but we said we were sophomores in high school, and I guess it was like 2002 or, yeah, yeah, Yeah. wow, we just established that. Um, and I cut it out, out of paranoia. I cut out sophomore, so it just says, in high school, like, really, <laughs> really terrible audio editing. And it was because I was like, 
well, you know, what if this podcast, like, what if we get weird stalkers? And like that in my mind was the way to save us from terrible deaths. I didn't give our fucking addresses, Christy. I know. See, this is why I this is why I'm obsessed with con artists and stuff. I'm like, even the slightest detail, you know, it'll be ruined for us. Okay. Well, January 18th, 2003, Chris and I were in some form of high school. What year? We'll never tell you. Maybe elementary. <laughs> Maybe. Maybe we were 80-year-old women already by that point, and we're like Benjamin buttoning it and we're getting younger. <laughs> Very hard to stop. Yes. So lawyer Neil Davis walks into the Harris County District Attorney Office and says that he represents a client who has led him to believe that a body could be found at a small patio home in the White Oak Bend subdivision in northwest Harris County. So Harris County is the is a large county in Texas um, where Houston is located. Okay. So this is just like just north of Houston. Um, it's a nice neighborhood, but smaller homes, very like solidly middle class. Mm-hmm. So he refuses to give any other details, citing uh, client attorney privilege. Oh attorney, my gosh, just attorney client privilege. Is yeah. there a way to say it right? I think it's attorney client. Okay, attorney client privilege. That's that's my one semester of law school at work. <laughs> <laughs> they do it alphabetically. Yes. So he says that's all i can tell you wait he, and he so he just says there's a body I bet my client has led me to believe there may be a body at this address oh my god so the police are like okay and so they go to this address and there they discover the nude body oh. of 34 year old jeffrey wright half buried in the backyard ew what oh my god which half <laughs> like, he's like face down uh-huh. and just like you know parts like uh, there's like a leg i think oh out, no and like a hand out oh god oh my god so the family dog <gasps> has no. begun digging him digging him up um he has neckties oh tied around his wrist oh no um there's a bathrobe sash tied around one ankle and one hand has been chewed off <gasps> and is laying on the patio. Oh, no. Because the family dog, as I mentioned. That's a bad dog. That's uh, a... <laughs> my, my fucking dog, if my dead body's laying there and they start chewing on me, I'm going to come back and haunt that fucking dog. <laughs> That's <laughs> right. <laughs> <laughs> You'll ruin all walks for them. That's right. Um, police enter the home and they find blood fucking everywhere. Oh my god! There's blood spattered throughout the master bedroom, including the bed, the floors, the walls, the ceiling, the ironing board. What? Yeah. <laughs> just, it's like somebody just sprayed blood all over the master bedroom. Oh my god. Yes. So, police call up this lawyer, Neil Davis, and they're like... Hey, does your client happen to be um, Susan Wright, uh-huh. Jeffrey's 26-year-old wife? And he's like, oh, yeah, that's my client. <laughs> um, she won't be speaking to you, though, because she's currently in a mental hospital because she s- believes that her husband is still alive okay. and is coming to kill her at any moment. Okay. And so the police are like, mm, okay. 
pretty sure he's dead, though. <laughs> yes. Um, the police, it turns out, were familiar with Susan. Oh. Because days earlier, on January 14th, she had been in the police department and filed um, a request for a protection order against her husband <gasps> citing domestic abuse. Oh. As it turned out, on that day, January 14th, Jeffrey was already dead. Oh. Because on January 13th, Susan tied him to the bed and stabbed him 193 times. What? 193 what? times. Yes. So 193 times um, is like the Ugh. official amount that is given in the autopsy. But the medical examiner says that was the number they could count. They well, believe yeah. that they're are probably more upwards of 200. Well, of course, because I mean, if you're going that crazy, yeah. you're going to hit some of the same spots yes. twice. Oh my yes. God. So what Susan gets out of this mental hospital where she's at and she turns herself into police on January 24th and she's arraigned on murder charges three days later. Um, she enters a plea of not guilty by reason of self-defense. Uh. (laughs) (laughs) how do you feel about that Kristen well I feel like it's going to be one of those things where I'll say something and then you'll tell me more and I'll be like I take everything back um I have learned something from last week (laughs) but Uh, my my question is oh shit oh sorry for fuck's sake Kristen (laughs) I I mean I barely bumped the mic one time during your segment you just fucking pulled the whole thing off I am not used to this kind of equipment. We've really upgraded the equipment, and I'm I'm used to our old dog and pony show. I have trouble with the information that we have at this point, understanding how 193 stab wounds could be self-defense. Yeah, unless she has like 116 on her. <laughs> right. You know, my, my problem is, so he was tied up, right? Correct. Yeah, so that's my problem with self-defense. Yeah. How how was he going to come after you if he was tied up? Well, let's get there. Okay. <laughs> 13 months later, on February 24th, 2004, the trial that some called a study in courtroom sensationalism began. So there was no mystery about how this guy died. So this mm-hmm. was not something that stretched out. There was no search for the perpetrator. Like, she turned herself in. This trial started Almost exactly a year later. Okay. The trial was so lurid and the detail so gruesome that Court TV covered this trial gavel to gavel. 48 hours devoted an entire episode to the case and Lifetime tossed around ideas for a made-for-TV movie. It was this movie that Maya saw and told me about leading to me covering this case for this episode. Excellent. So this, um, all of this media coverage, they started referring to Susan as the blue-eyed butcher. Um, she was young, 20, 26, I think, blonde, these big blue eyes, very mm-hmm. attractive. And so that's just kind of the, you know, the fun nickname that the media gave her <laughs> and the name of the Lifetime movie. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> um, 
the prosecution, led by Assistant District Attorney uh, Kelly Siegler, would argue that Susan killed her husband for his $200,000 life insurance policy, while Susan's defense attorney, Neil Davis, argued that after suffering years of abuse, she had killed her husband to protect herself and her children. So um, they had been married for four or five years. Mm -hmm. Um, I think four years because they had a four-year-old son, but she was pregnant at the time they got married. Okay. Um, So they had a four-year-old son and like a two-year-old daughter. Gotcha. Um, Don't question me on those ages. I imagine that's very important to the case. (laughs) (laughs) Susan took the stand in her defense in this trial. Oh, people never do that. Never do it. Yes. Um, she tearfully told, tearfully told jurors one horrific tale after another about the abuse she had secretly endured during her five-year marriage. You've said that like Ricky Ricardo <laughs> <laughs> about the abuse. Say <laughs> <Hey>, no! <laughs> My mouth is so dry, but I'm afraid to take a drink. Take a drink. People won't care if they hear your eyes. <laughs> Lucy. Sorry. Sorry if you heard the ice in my cup. I would not think my beverage choice through. Okay, so she told one horrific tale after another about the abuse she had secretly <laughs> endured during her five year marriage. <laughs> Beneath her husband's congenial, back slapping persona, she testified, was a sadistic, drug abusing brute who'd belittled and controlled her, kicked and punched her. And when she didn't do what he wanted and sexually assaulted her whenever he felt like it. Mm. On the evening of January 13th, 2003, Susan said Jeffrey returned home from a boxing lesson high on cocaine, tried to get Bradley, their four-year-old son, to box with him, popped him in the face with his fist, and later attacked her after she told him he had to get help for his anger. He then ordered her to get into bed where he raped her. Afterward, he left for a few minutes, and when he returned, he was holding a butcher knife. He waved it over her head, shouting, die, bitch. Oh, God. She testified, I threw my hands up, then I grabbed the knife, and I started kicking him with my right knee. His grasp on the knife loosened just a little bit, and I got it from him. Um, She said she first stabbed him in the neck and then kept stabbing him because she knew that the second she stopped, he was going to kill her. Mm. At one point during the frenzied stabbing, Bradley, the four-year-old son, Mm -hmm. knocked on the bedroom door. Despite the fact that she had already stabbed Jeffrey multiple times, she was convinced that he was going to get up and come after her. So Wright said that she tied her husband's arm to the bed with a necktie before hiding the knife and walking Bradley back to his room. Then she got another knife from the kitchen, thinking Jeffrey might have found the first one. Mm -hmm. She said, I knew he was going to kill me, and I was so scared because I didn't want to die. I started stabbing him again. She said she began stabbing his legs for all the times he'd kicked her, and she stabbed his penis for all the times she made made her have sex when she didn't want to. And so... In her mind, in her in her testimony, she's saying that she's on him and she's just stabbing and stabbing because she fears the moment she mm-hmm. starts stab, stops stabbing that he's going to kill her. So is this, uh, is the theory of PTSD like? Yeah, the, I think the theory is like battered wife syndrome. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 
Um, finally, she testifies that she cut the knife or cut the tie connecting his hand to the bedpost and pulled him off the bed. She says his shoulder hit the nightstand, spilling the wax from a red candle Jeffrey had lit earlier um, that evening onto his body. She brought a dolly into the bedroom, propped him on it, used another necktie to fasten his left hand. Why do to they the have dolly. a dolly? <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> I guess I don't need to judge what people have in their homes. No, they have a dolly, Christmas. <laughs> Lots of people have dollies. He seemed to be a, I think he had like a tile company, worked for a tile company. Okay, so then that makes sense. That makes sense. You know, not everybody's husband is a video game. <laughs> <laughs> don't make the people jealous, Brandy. <laughs> I don't want to bum anybody out because I got the YouTube sensation. <laughs> She testifies that she brings the dolly into the bedroom, props him onto it, and then used another necktie to fasten his left hand to the dolly and used the sash from her bathrobe to secure his feet. Then she rolled Jeffrey outside to a hole that he had dug months earlier to install a fountain. Which, gentlemen, if you're listening, let this be a lesson. If you start a fucking project, finish it or your dead body's going to end up in the hole. I am so glad you're giving this lesson. Complete it 100%. Yes. Kyla, or, Kyla, wow. Oh, God, what kind of weird psychological issue is that? I was trying to say my husband's name, and I said my sister. <laughs> Norman. Um, so Norman and I had this really condescending um, home inspector one yes. time. And he said this, that in retrospect was totally true and dead on. He said, whatever project you start, complete it 100%. Don't start a kitchen renovation and just leave the trim off just and you're going to get to it later yes. because and you'll course, never come back. Yeah, it'll to never it. come back to it. and he was putting it in, in terms of like the wife will always be upset because it in her mind the kitchen isn't done. Yes. Which I'm sorry, it's just not done. It's just not done. Yeah. I don't know what the I don't care who's the yeah. the wife, whatever. It's not fucking done. Yeah, yeah. If it's not done 100 Okay, yes. I'm with you. Yes, okay. thank you. So Jeffrey had dug this hole in the backyard like four months earlier to put in a fountain, mm-hmm. and now his dead body is in it. Project complete. Pro- <laughs> Sorry. That was... Fuck. That's messed up. That is... Kristen... Yeah, yeah, bad stuff. Because I guess right now I'm I've kind of bought into this that he was abusive, and so part of me is kind of like, yeah, and now he's in a fountain hole. So, <laughs> but what do I know? It could exactly. he could be innocent. Exactly. Okay. Either way, he probably doesn't deserve to be in a fountain hole. But. So she crams his six foot two inch body into the fountain hole, covers him with dirt, and goes inside. But She testifies that she still believed her husband was alive. She said she sat on the sofa for the rest of the night with the knife in her hands and watched for Jeff to get up because I was afraid the second I went to sleep, he was going to get up and come after me again. Hmm. Wright told the jury that on the night of the killing, she experienced some sort of mental breakdown, which lasted for days. She explained that the reason she didn't initially tell anyone about what she had done was because that her brain still wouldn't accept it. He was still alive and I was scared of him. And it wasn't until Sunday morning, five days after the killing, that she began to realize that something horrible had happened. So after after the killing, uh-huh. she does a couple of weird things. Uh-huh. So- <laughs> 
weirder than what we've already so, heard. So the first of which is her effort to clean up the scene. Uh-huh. So she goes to the store. She buys all of these cleaning products and paint and topsoil. So she buys topsoil because she feels like she needs to add a layer on top of them because this fountain hole is not that deep. Uh-huh. And so she's going to put a layer of dirt over him to, you know, conceal him better. And it's going to keep him weighed down so he can't get up and come after her. This is what she testifies. Okay. She um, goes in and she, like, bleaches the whole bedroom and starts to attempt to paint the walls, paint over the blood in the walls. But... As mentioned earlier, she did a fucking terrible job because when the police come in, there's blood everywhere. And so she testifies that she did these things because in her mind, Jeffrey was going to come home at any minute and he was going to be pissed that the house was a mess. I, uh, yes. Oh, man. So it's her testimony that she was in some kind of fog, some kind of dissociative state at this time where she realized that there was clearly this giant mess from killing her husband, uh-huh. but that she did not grasp that her husband was dead. <sighs> okay. <laughs> so, yeah. I mean, I think it's hard to reconcile those two things, but I've never been a battered wife. Yeah, I think... So I can't put myself in that situation. I think that's what's hard for me is I feel yeah. like there's... If we had a real expert, <laughs> you know, I, I think maybe some of it could be explained, but hearing it with what little I know now, I'm kind of like, I uh, don't get it. Yes. And so then the other thing that she did was that she went and filed for the restraining order after mm-hmm. he was already dead. And so there's a couple of theories on this. So the first is that she truly believed that he wasn't really dead and that she was truly seeking it to protect herself. The other mm-hmm. is that people had started to ask where Jeffrey was. Yep. He hadn't showed up for work. His parents were calling. Her parents were calling. Um, she had to come up with some excuse. And so what she told the police when she filed for this restraining order was that they had gotten in this big argument. Mm-hmm. He had popped Bradley when they were, you know, when he'd come home all coked up. And um, and so they'd gotten in this big fight. She told him she need, he needed to get help for his anger problems, whatever. And he'd stormed out. Mm-hmm. And so she was terrified that he was going to come back and do something terrible. So the idea would be that then she could say, oh, I murdered him in self-defense because he came back even though the Correct. body's even clearly he been dead. dead at that time. Do you know what the backyard situation is that, like... They couldn't have been too close to other neighbors, right? I they, mean, if no, he they was... Were, they were close to other neighbors, yes. But I think it was like, um, I don't know, like this patio area, there was like a screened-in porch and then the patio. I don't know. So something kept it from this body just being easily viewed by a neighbor looking over. Okay. Because it was. It's in, it's in a regular neighborhood, so... Can you imagine? Yeah. Like, what if you looked over? I know. That's what I'm saying. Like, can you imagine you're you're in your bedroom and you look out the window and there's someone half buried? Yeah. Yes. Oh, my God. And um, one article that I read um, said that in the... In the days leading up to where she finally went and talked to this lawyer and was like, hey, I'm realizing what happened. Mm -hmm. That she was like in the kitchen looking out in the backyard and was like, holy shit, the dog's digging up my husband right now. What should I do about that? And so, Um, I mean, I just don't know how to explain what was happening in her brain during this time. 
I doubt she could explain what was happening in her brain at that time. Or mm. maybe she could. I... <laughs> Here's... I see, I'm so afraid to say stuff when... Say I, something terrible, Kristen. Okay. My... The thing that makes me a little skeptical mm-hmm. is that she had the presence of mind to call an attorney rather than the police. Yep. Okay. Exactly. Okay. Yeah. Yes. That's That's what's going through my yep. mind. Because to me, that's... That's someone who's kind of got their wits about them. Yep. That's my thought, too. Mm-hmm. Okay, so she's she's laid all this out. She's testified to all this information on the stand. A major problem the defense faced was that there was almost no evidence to corroborate anything Susan claimed. A neighbor testified that she that he saw Jeffrey angrily grab Susan's arm a couple of times. Mm-hmm. A couple of friends testified that Susan had once had what they believed was a black eye, but that she'd explained it away by saying one of the kids hit her with a toy. But at the same yeah, time... Yeah, that's normal. That's normal, I mm-hmm. feel like. Yes. Someone who's receiving abuse isn't going to say, oh, yeah, my husband hit me. Yeah, because I always hate when people are like, they hear a story about an abusive guy and they're like, well, mm-hmm. he's such a nice guy. And okay, yeah. maybe you just don't know him very well. Yeah. Maybe you don't know what it's like to be his wife. Right. Yeah. Um, Susan's mother took the stand and testified that she had seen black eyes and bruises and that she'd witnessed her daughter cry out in pain because her back hurt so bad from the abuse. Mm. However, none of them could provide any evidence such as medical reports, pictures, nothing um, that Susan was a battered wife. There was no concrete evidence other Mm. than these people's accounts of what they may have seen. Right. Prosecutor Kelly Siegler was calling bullshit on this whole defense. Wow. She told the jury that Wright had most likely lured her husband to bed and tied him to the post, leading him to think that they were going to engage in some sexual game playing. Okay. To get him even more aroused, she had poured candle wax on his body. So this is what oh. I think is really interesting is because that was something that was in the autopsy that, you know, had to come up with an explanation. So it's the prosecution's... Um, Claim that they were, you know, that she was pouring the wax on him for sexy time or whatever. Yeah. And to the point that Susan knew enough about it to work it into her version of events, too. That she'd accidentally bumped the nightstand and the candle had fallen on him and gotten wax on him. Uh-huh. I think there's something to that. Okay. She... <sighs> okay, go on, so go on. Th- this is this is where my, my brain is. Okay. Okay, you've just stabbed your husband 193 times. Yes. You're... You, <laughs> I'm with you. Yes. He's, you know, 230 pounds. She's 120 pounds, whatever, okay. you know, ish. Sure. And she's hoisting him onto this dolly, and he's fucking bleeding everywhere. Mm-hmm. And is she really taking the time to notice that she's knocked a candle onto him? Ding, ding, ding. Thank you. That's, yes. Yes, that is exactly what I'm thinking. That yeah. would be so low. On your priority yes. list of things to take note of. I I completely agree. This is the piece of evidence that I was like, mm, I don't know if I'm buying her story. For me, it's the calling the lawyer instead yes. of the police. And yeah, that seems like... It seems like an odd detail. It seems to like recall. an odd detail to stick out in your mind. Like I think you wouldn't even fucking notice that that had happened. No, it no. would be the last thing on your mind. Even if you did notice it, which I don't think you would, why would you mention it? I, I mean, yeah. you you I would never. You mention, tied him yeah, up, stabbed exactly. him a whole bunch, yes. and buried him halfway in the backyard. Yes, exactly. Oh, and don't mind the candle wax. Yeah, yes. no, who cares? Yes, exactly. 
So, okay, so this is the prosecutor saying, you know, okay. she poured the wax on his body. And then as he's tied up, you know, he's thinking he's having sexy time with his wife. Right, pulls out a knife and turns the bedroom into, quote, a torture chamber. The motive, according to Siegler, Wright wanted to cash in on a $200,000 life insurance policy. All that battered wife abuse was bull. It was just bull. That's what Siegler said. Uh, no. See, okay, uh, other side of this. Yes. If you wanted $200,000, which to me, that doesn't seem like a lot. I feel like you'd do the push off a cliff thing. Right. Or you do, I mean, this seems like a really overkill. So, yes. So yeah. maybe it's not in self-defense. Like maybe he didn't, her version's maybe not true. Maybe he wasn't coming at her with a knife that night. Mm-hmm. Maybe she was a victim of abuse and she'd finally had enough. And so maybe it's a mashup of the two versions. Yeah. yeah. I think I could see that. She yes. had been a victim of abuse, but she did lure him into the bed that night and tie him up and then kill him because she'd had enough. Which, to me, that makes total sense. And I don't know. I, I get frustrated with some of the laws on that because I think if you've been... That's just as much self-defense as if, yes. as if he was coming at you with a knife. Absolutely. If yeah. you've been beaten by this guy for 10 yeah. years and... The most dangerous time to to be in an abusive relationship is when you're trying to leave. Yeah. That's when you're more likely to be killed. Yeah. So if you do go ahead and kill him, yeah. to me, that's still self-defense. Yeah. yeah, I could see that completely. Well, I guess I'm right. <laughs> <laughs> oh, this is such a tough one. Yes. I love this. Okay. So Siegler says, all that battered wife of... Abuse bull was just that. It was bull. So this is what she's like. You know, okay, she's yeah. She's really ramping up, making her point in court. It's Texas. She's, she's got it. pretty great about herself. <laughs> in response to Susan's claim that she fought her husband for the knife, Siegler said, almost laughing, she oh. says, you managed to stab a guy who outweighs you by 100 pounds and he was and was so much stronger than you? And when you stabbed him the 56th time, oh. or the 89th time, or the 158th time, was your arm tired? Oh, my God. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, ouch. As for Susan's remarks that she kept stabbing Jeffrey in a sheer panic, convinced he was going to get up and come after her, Siegler snapped, and in this state of sheer panic that you were in, you were able to stop when you heard that knock at your door, get off of Jeff, answer the door, grab Bradley, walk him down the hall, put him in his room, shut the door, go get another knife, go back into the bedroom, and start stabbing him some more. Is that right? Damn, she's good. She is good! <laughs> she needs a TV show. Yes. So it's funny you say that because... Her antics in the courtroom, and I'll get to the biggest thing next. Okay, were so huge that uh, one of the one network seriously considered um, like spinning a like starting a like hour drama based on the things that she did. These unconventional methods. That, yeah, like, it would be like a courtroom drama type show, and the prosecutor had these oh. unconventional methods that led to convictions every time. Yes, what stopped that I from know, happening? Right? <laughs> Oh, I would watch that. Okay. Okay. This is the best part. Oh, my God. 
In what some called an effort to shock the jury, the prosecution offered an unusual reenactment. Oh, my God. So they brought in the actual bed and mattress from the crime scene, brought it in as evidence in the courtroom. Okay. So they've got the bed. Picture this. The bed, the mattress. The mattress is covered in plastic, but there's fucking blood everywhere. The the headboard and the footboard are covered in blood. There's just this bloody ass bed oh in the middle of the Oh, my God. Siegler has one of her um, associates lay down no, on the no, bed. No, 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 no. Oh, my God. Are you serious? She ties him to the bed. Oh, what? She... Has on this, like, she was, like, kind of known as, like, a snappy dresser. She has on this really form-fitting black pantsuit and heels. She climbs on the fucking bed. No. Straddles No, him, no, no. Takes a knife from evidence, one of the actual knives from the case, and pantomimes stabbing him 193 times. Okay, okay. <laughs> This, this lady, she was the president of her high school theater department, and her parents were like, you can't pursue acting, you have to go to law school. That's what happened there. That's ridiculous. I think think partly that, and I think that she was just like, fucking loving that this was getting so much media attention. She was like, oh, I am on display. I am rocking and rolling. I'm going to straddle my associate. Can you imagine being that guy? Like, So here's the funniest part about this. So that guy, he was not a lawyer. He was just some law clerk that worked in her office or something (laughs) like that. And I don't know if he didn't know what he was getting into, but... He had just put in a big dip in his mouth before he got tied to the bed. And all of this writhing she was doing on him caused, like, the juice to go down his throat. So he was literally, like, choking while she's doing it. And so he's fighting back against her because he can't breathe. Oh, my God. (laughs) Wait. uh, Holy shit. Did you watch footage of this? No, I just saw like a really oh detailed. My God. I hope there's footage of it. I want to go back and watch it. I, I cannot believe any of this. This is yes. crazy. <laughs> so the judge didn't at any point say, uh, "How about you cool According it?" According to the articles that I read, no. Like he was cool with this reenactment. The defense didn't object to the reenactment, as far as Are I know. Are you kidding me? Right. <laughs> What's amazing to me is I feel like at least once a week, one of us will say, and then the judge said, hey, everybody, <laughs> yeah. let's keep this civil. Yeah. But not in this situation. Not in this case. The prosecutors straddling a guy, writhing on top of him, stabbing him 193 times. And I bet she counted every time, oh, right? Oh, I'm sure out she loud. counted them out loud. I have no doubt. Th- oh. That's fucking nuts. Okay. Oh, jeez. So, they've done this crazy reenactment, you know. <laughs> so, we're now we're at closing arguments. During her closing, Siegler told the jury... <laughs> Who did she straddle this time? <laughs> <laughs> Siegler told the jury that the defense was an insult to their intelligence. Oh, You are left with the word of Susan Lucille Wright. The word of a card-carrying, obvious, no doubt about it, caught red-handed, confirmed, documented liar. 
Siegler said, she cries when you're in the room and she stops when you leave. What? (laughs) (sighs) Defense attorney Neil Davis reminded jurors um, of the testimony by Wright and others that Jeffrey was abusive towards his wife. This was Jeff's physical and mental punching bag, Davis said, adding that 193 stab wounds shows how much Susan feared her husband. I can see that. Yeah. The jurors deliberated for only five hours. Oh, my God. What do you think they decided? Oh, shit. Okay. Um, Okay, I have a question. Okay. Did they bring any experts in to testify on the effects of domestic violence or PTSD or any of that? Um, I did not come across that information in my research. Okay. Because I'm thinking if they had, then there'd be Mm -hmm. a chance she'd be found not guilty. Like Mm if... Okay. Let me think here. I think they went guilty. They did. Yeah. They uh, dismissed her claims of self-defense and convicted her of first-degree murder, and she was sentenced to 25 years in prison. Wow. So, as I mentioned earlier, though... Is there more to this? this is, there's more. Oh, my God. This trial was heavily covered by the media. Each day, the gallery was full of legal correspondence for different media outlets. One of those correspondents was Brian Weiss, who... In addition to being a legal expert for a local Houston television network, also happened to be a seasoned appellate lawyer. Oh. He was outraged by Siegler's portrayal of Susan and what he called her blatant attempts to mislead the jury with myths, misconceptions, and stereotypes about battered women. Hmm. But he was almost as concerned about, uh, about the way Wright's defense had handled the case. So he felt like she was, you know, misportrayed by mm-hmm. the prosecution. And he also thought he was she was poorly defended by her own lawyer. Mm-hmm. So after her conviction, he asked her family to let him file her appeal pro bono. Wow. Yeah. So uh, in my mind, there are a couple of... The, there's, I think, a big, a big mistake that the defense made. And that is by going not guilty by reason of Mm self-defense, not going not guilty by reason of battered woman syndrome. Yeah. Why didn't they do that? I think those are two very different things. Yes. And I don't know the state law in Texas, so maybe in Texas they're not that different. But my understanding of the law is that they are very different. Self-defense means in the moment Mm -hmm. you acted in Mm -hmm. Mm self-defense. Battered woman syndrome or battered wife syndrome is you suffered years of abuse which culminated in this act where you... Yeah. Yeah. So I do think a big mistake was made on the part of the defense. Yeah. Um, in 2005, the 14th Court of Appeals of Texas <laughs> upheld her conviction. Okay, we need to explain why we're laughing. I'm sorry. The cat is meowing very loudly in the background. <laughs> she wants in here so bad. <laughs> we have her food hostage. <laughs> yeah. Okay, so I'm sorry. Say the appellate stuff again. Okay, so in 2005, the 14th Court of Appeals of Texas upheld her conviction. Okay. They said no to the appeal. Um, So they reappealed in 2008 with the testimony of a new witness. An ex-fiance of Jeffrey Wright. Whoa. They were together for four years. 
um, maybe longer. Um, she testified that she had also been a victim of abuse at his hands. Oh. Multiple times he pushed her down the stairs, that he'd hit her, you know, all kinds of different, very much corroborating mm-hmm. what mm-hmm. Susan Wright had said. So in 2009, the Texas Court of Appeals granted Wright a new sentencing hearing after determining that Wright's counsel rendered ineffective assistance during the punishment phase of the trial. Hmm. So this is interesting to me because that doesn't directly correlate with the new testimony that they brought forward. Mm-hmm. So I'm wondering in this, you know, I didn't look into it any further. <laughs> so. Just curious. <laughs> Not curious. <laughs> to... Not curious enough to Google it. Apparently. Yeah. <laughs> Jesus. <laughs> so the court of appeals says, you know, you did get ineffective counsel during the punishment phase. Mm -hmm. So you will get a new punishment phase. So you're still convicted. Okay. But we're going to relook at your sentence. We're going to see a new jury. They're going to hear just the punishment phase. And then they're going to resentence you. Okay. There's a risk in this, though. Because they could hear the same testimony and decide that 25 years isn't long enough. I'm so sorry. Would you mind just letting her in? (laughs) She is going nuts out there. Ma'am. Come on in, Kiki. Can you get it together? We're trying to record a podcast She's here. brushing up against you like, yes. hello. Okay. See, but <clears throat> i that's a risk I would take because I feel like 25 years is about what you would get. Uh, see, I yeah, think 25 about years the is max. on the low side. What? Yeah. Uh, For a brutal murder? 193 stab wounds, Kristen. Uh, I don't know. 25 years is what I would expect. But it wasn't 25 years to life. It was... Oh, just 25, 25 years. years. Without the possibility for no, parole? No, with the possibility of parole. Oh, okay. Okay, that is a little I light. I think it seems yeah. light. Yeah, okay. So, yeah. So, she she rolls the dice. She's like, yes, let's take the new punishment mm-hmm. phase. Um, so, they seat a new jury. And on November 20th, 2010, the new jury reduces her sentence to 20 years. Which essentially means that she's eligible for parole two and a half years earlier. Okay. So yeah. It's not much. Yeah. Um, she became eligible for parole in 2014 and has been denied twice. Once on June 12th, 2014, and again on July 24th, 2017. Her next parole hearing will be in July of 2020. Wow. Okay. What do you think? Um, so there's some, I don't know. I'm kind of torn. I'm actually, oh, I'm afraid to say it. Oh, say it. What? I actually think that the prosecution might be closer to right than the defense is. Oh, I don't think so. I think that there's a, there's a good possibility. I think it's like we said earlier, I think it's very possibly a mashup of the two scenarios. Uh-huh. She was a battered wife. She had seen, she had been abused And the only way she saw of getting out of it was to murder her husband. Mm -hmm. And so I think that I would have been way more behind a defense that said battered wife syndrome. I think the story of self-defense where he came at her with a knife and she fought him off and turned around and stabbed him. I don't think that's true. Yeah. I don't buy that story. Yeah. 
I think that the scenario where she has been abused and she sees her opportunity, the only opportunity she sees to leave is to kill her husband. And so she does. She lures him into bed, ties him up, thinks he's thinks he's going to have, you know, sex with his wife. Mm-hmm. And she instead stabs him, like the prosecution says. I do think that is more plausible. But I do not agree that she did it for the $200,000. No, absolutely not. I don't not. think that's the motive at all. Mm-mm. I think that it is likely that she was a battered wife and that this was her way that she saw out of it. Case solved. <laughs> <laughs> so it's interesting, this article um, by a Blanche Devereaux's grandson, Skip Hollins. <laughs> <laughs> Can't you just hear her? Oh, Skip. <laughs> yes. Um, was excellent and um like i said it was in it it was in texas monthly and i loved the title of it what was it 193 oh oh that's good good. yeah but it's interesting because he writes like um uh he inserts himself a little bit into the article where he's Mm -hmm. so this article he's actually um interviewing her he's gone to the prison where she's being held and he's interviewing and he's making notes about her mannerisms that she has Uh and so a couple of the things he's like okay maybe she is a battered wife or is she putting on a show for me what were the mannerisms because a couple of times the things that she does is she like talks about how she wonders what the guard is thinking about like Oh my gosh! I think the guard is re- is is tired of me being here because the guard has to watch her the whole time uh-huh. while they're being while they're having this interview, and so she's like, "I think the guard's ready for me to go back to my cell." Like she's up, she's worried about angering the guard in yeah. some way. So yeah. there was just a couple of different things. Okay, and, um, I didn't note them here, so I re- I really urge you to read this article. It's excellent and but report back to you. And report back to me on your findings. <laughs> 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 but um. I just think that even he was like, okay, is this real? Or yeah. is she putting on a show for me? Did he come to any kind of conclusion or no? Just just well, he was wondering. you have to read the article. Oh, yeah, out. mystery. I no clue. <laughs> I did read the whole article, but I can't remember. Is this like an elementary school book report where you didn't read the whole thing and you're like, if you want to know what happens, <laughs> you yeah. read the <laughs> If he came to a conclusion, I think okay. it was just—it was an open-ended question. Okay, you draw your own conclusion. It's just weird because usually Golden Girls episodes they wrap up in like half an hour, so <laughs> just odd that they would leave us hanging. So, what do you think about the blue-eyed butcher? Um, first of all, uh, that was amazing. <laughs> Maya. Right? Maya, thank you. Yes. That was amazing. That was so good. And now I want to watch the Lifetime movie. Yeah, which is something I've never said in my life. (laughs) Me either. Certainly not. (laughs) Lifetime movies. What? (laughs) You have to head home now. Gotta gotta talk in. No, so everything about this is fascinating to me. Yes. Um... I want to know so much more. Yes. It's funny because I took such a hard turn on that prosecutor from being like, <laughs> yeah. she's amazing. She's the best. She needs a TV show. And then there's something about, oh, she wants a TV show. Yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah. I don't know. I get, I, I think I feel the same way you do, yeah. which, you know, probably, yeah, battered woman syndrome. Yeah. And um, yeah, I, I do think she would have had to lure him to bed and tie him up if they had that kind of a weight difference mm-hmm. a height difference and he's all coked up because he the yeah. autopsy showed that he had he had coke in his in his system yeah 
Yeah, I don't. I'm, I don't see how she could overpower him, I tie either. him up. Yeah, yeah. I'm just not buying her version of events. I want to know more about that candle wax because that is. <laughs> yeah. See, to me, that is damning evidence. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> oh, that was such a good one. Yeah, I really, I really enjoyed that one. Shout out to Maya. <laughs> okay. All right. Are we ready to wrap this up? God, I guess so. Yes, the, the cat has joined us. So. Jeez. Oh, <laughs> She had stuff to do in here. Yeah, she's very busy. She's playing with the curtains right now. It's her office, too. That's right. (laughs) We can't just kick her out of here. No. (laughs) Okay. Now I'm thinking of all those dumb business cat things. Um, She have a little business hat. You know, the business cat things (laughs) where they're like, we need to think outside the box because I just pooped in it. (laughs) Oh, God. That's a good way to end, right? Anyway, join us next week when we'll be experts on two whole new topics. Podcast adjourned. (laughs) And now for a note about our process. I read a bunch of stuff, then regurgitate it all back up in my very limited vocabulary. And I copy and paste from the best sources on the web, and sometimes Wikipedia. So we owe a huge thank you to the real experts. For this episode, I got a lot of great info from Biography.com, Smithsonian Magazine, and the New York Times Archive. Please note that Cassie Chadwick was full of shit, so if you look her up, you'll see that each article tells a slightly different story. All of them are entertaining, though. And I got my info from an amazing article in Texas Monthly by Skip Hollingsworth. Worth noting that he's not really Blanche Devereaux's grandson that we know of. And another article in the Houston Chronicle by Andrew something or other. So Kaufman. <laughs> For a full list of our sources, visit lgtcpodcast.com. Any errors, like mispronouncing poor Andrew's last name, are of course ours. Please don't take our word for it. Go read their stuff. Seriously, the article 193, amazing. 